Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And today, we are opening up Season 3 of the Micro Moment. A few weeks ago, we asked you to vote. We asked you to vote on Instagram, on Twitter, on sending us emails on what you would like Season 3 to be about. And we had so many fantastic responses on that. We really do appreciate you guys helping us out and helping us decide exactly what we're going to delve into for the next couple of months. Right. And guess what? It was a tie between two topics. The first is careers in microbiology. And what is the other one? Evil microbiologists. So these are actually two of uh, topics I really want to dive into, and I'm so excited you guys chose them. So we ended up flipping a coin. And you know what? We're going to start with careers in microbiology. That's right. So we are going to do kind of a quick season here. It's probably going to be about six episodes in this season discussing all the different careers in microbiology. Not all of them, of course, because microbiology is so diverse and immense that we couldn't possibly cover all of them. But we hope this does give you a little bit of an idea of the universality of careers in microbiology. And hopefully to maybe inspire some of you to get into a microbiology career. We will have a little bit of interviews from people who are in these careers, as well as John and I talking about the differences in salaries or career expectations or educations or skill sets that are important for the different careers. We are hoping to cover about 15 different careers in microbiology with about three or four different careers covered in each episode. But today we're not going to delve into any specific career, but talk more in a general idea of careers in microbiology and some of the fundamental questions people ask when they're pursuing these kinds of careers. And actually, none of them are specific to microbiology. So no matter what career you are in now or would like to be in, the you will probably find something beneficial in today's episode, or at least I hope you will. Yeah, we're going to start abroad and we're going to cover academia versus industry. And like what Tess said, you could put this to engineering, chemistry, biochemistry, you name it, it applies to that. And that being said, John and I are completely drawing from our own experiences and the experiences of people that we have discussed and talked to in the past couple of years of hosting this podcast. We hope that it does serve you, but we are by no means career advisors, but we do hope that you can take some of this information and draw upon your own experiences and help make good choices for yourself and your own career paths. Right. And I think we take this near and dear to our heart just because we found, at least for us, there wasn't really a communication about differences between academia and industry when we were about to go into the career path. So in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about industry versus academia versus government versus clinical, which are all different places you can go in science fields. We're also going to talk a little bit about finding happiness in your career. But before we delve into either one of those topics, may I please ask you to like or subscribe to The Micro Moment. It really does help us out in sharing this information with a wider audience, and we would really love to see and gain some feedback from what you guys are hearing or what you'd like to hear or what you like about the podcast. Now, with all that business out of the way, let's dive into academia versus government versus clinical versus industry. So let's start. Well, I, I would just want to say, starting off, 
John and I have both been in academia. I have a PhD in genetic genomics and bioinformatics. John has a master's degree in microbiology. John has worked in clinical setting as a clinical microbiologist. I worked as an MLT as a medical laboratory technician. And now we both have industry jobs, myself as a senior bioinformatician scientist. And I am a scientist at a startup company. And yeah, so we're both in the startup companies. We've worked in pharma. We've worked in academia. So we do have some experiences drawn. We don't have a lot to do with government in our discussion today. Actually, won't discuss too much in that. But I put it here just to show sort of the universality of microbiology. You can go in any one of these sectors as a microbiologist and find a very rewarding career. Right. And really, that's what this whole discussion comes down to, before we give you any other information, it really is doing what is best for you. Some people are very geared towards academic lifestyle. Some people like the industry. Um, And even within industry, there's lots of different avenues that you can go in. Startup life is certainly not for everybody, and nor is joining a giant company. Clinical can have a lot of ups and downs as well. So every job sort of has its up and down, and it really is in up to each person to kind of decide what is the lifestyle you want to live, what is the career path you want to choose, and what is going to work best for you. So where do we want to start? I thought we would discuss a little bit about some of the myths that we heard as academics about the industrial world, so mm. to speak. How about the biggest one, that you're a sellout? All right, what do you want to say about being a sellout? Feels pretty nice. No. <laughs> we're just rolling in dough. Yeah. Not really. No. More so than if we were postdocs. That this is true. Yeah. I feel like with this one, there's a sense that when you're doing research in an academic setting, it's quote unquote more pure, while there's this connotation that in industry you're you're motivated by money. Yeah, I think the the phrase I usually hear is in academia, you get to do independent research, while in industry, you have no say in your research direction. Would you say that's true? Yes and no. <laughs> Explain. So particularly this past year, I find that industry has become a little muddled. I feel in like a big company, 100%, you have to do what you're told. I know if that's a hundred percent true you don't think when you were working at a bigger company you had any design over the research direction okay okay yeah so there is some flexibility and depending on who you're working with they can be very encouraging we already had a project and i wanted to try something a little bit different with it because of that uh, i was allowed to start doing some research unfortunately i was not able to finish it however i feel like there's more flexibility in a startup because there's less people, they're looking for, I feel like they're looking for more ideas, especially when a project is early stages. Yeah, I would say it definitely at startup, you have that higher risk, higher reward, you wear many hats. It's often necessary for you to perform at a much higher level than you would be at a larger company because you have to gain all this responsibility. The great flexibility comes great responsibility. Right. So I would say in a bigger company, there's a lot less flexibility in what you want to research. Independent research almost doesn't exist because whether or not you're in academia or industry, you're still 
chasing money. You're still trying to get someone to believe in whatever research you think is important and pay you, fund you to conduct that research. In academia, this is usually pursued by getting grants. In industry, it's pursued by getting investors or clients or customers. I would say 100%. So before leaving academia, this was right as the pandemic was really hitting off. I heard some professors talking about how could they tie their research into COVID and possibly get funding that way. And that's something they weren't even looking at or thinking of or in their wheelhouse. But there was so much money in COVID research. If you could turn around a grant, you could get you could fund a grad student. Exactly. So I would say, yes, in academia, you might have a little bit more flexibility. You might have a little bit more say in the independent in independent research, quote unquote, but you still have to write the grants. You still have to get someone to fund that. And ultimately, you're only really doing that independent research if you rise to that level of a PI or a full professor where you are writing the grants and directing that research. Right. So that's I, that was the first myth I think that we should have us. I think that's the biggest one. A lot of people think that when you're in industry, you have no say in research direction. But I just don't think that's true. No. And I don't think academia is as free in independent research as they like everyone to believe. Do you have any other myths? I have another. Uh, Throw another one at us. Okay. So this idea, I think, came to me often. And this was one that I was worried about going into industry is the fact that the the myth, I should say, that in industry, you don't contribute to the greater scientific community, you don't participate in conferences, you don't get to publish papers, everything's proprietary, and you're not allowed to say any information. In academia, I always thought was very important to be able to publish in open source journals, to be able to share your scientific uh, research. And you know what? That isn't necessarily the case. I am in the process of writing a paper for my previous job, and it's describing a method of anaerobic fermentation. Now, I will say that industry does not emphasize nearly as much as publishing than academia does. Yeah, the publish and perish concept is definitely not there in industry. Right. And it is true that you can't say everything about your research because, you know, you're at the end of the day, you're trying to make a product. But that doesn't mean you can't go to a conference that you can't talk about what you're researching. Like I went to a conference last year. Right. A lot of academics are getting into industry, are having side hustles. We see that all the time in the Boston area with Harvard MIT professors coming up with little side projects, little companies that they're going to start up. They're going to research something for a commercial use. And even when they go out to conferences as academics, they still have to keep some of that secret. So I think the lines between academia and industry is very blurred. They're very blurry lines. Yeah. And working at a startup, I feel like that has blurred even more for me. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next myth that I hear all the time when people talk about industry or just the sciences really is that you have to have a PhD in order to be a scientist. What are your thoughts on that, John? It's not true. (laughs) Are you a living, breathing example of why that's not true? At my previous industry job, I was a research associate. But 
when I jumped to a new company, I became a scientist. And I think if you look back 20 years ago, the scientist position may have been more firmly for PhDs. However, I think nowadays there are tracks and companies set up where the end goal is a scientist or a senior scientist. And you don't necessarily need a PhD at that point. This is an evolving field. The titles, the roles, the career trajectory is changing all the time. And it does seem in the past, I would say even five years, needing to have a PhD to be a scientist is becoming an antiquated idea. That is very old ideology, old thinking. Right. A lot of times in these companies where you can become a scientist without a PhD, when you have a master's or bachelor's, you can reach that level of scientist in the same years it would take you to get a PhD. Right. So you could have a master's, work in industry for three years, and now you've essentially been um, in the sciences for five years, which is your typical PhD, and you can rise to that level of a scientist. Yeah, it's which is exactly what you did. I, I was gonna say like it's you know it's more based off of years of experience. It's transitioned to years of experience, and yeah, you, as a scientist, that's around five years. And in my experience, that was five years of academia and industry. Right. So I think this idea that you need a PhD to become a scientist is becoming old news. I really think that is the best option because it should be based on your experience and it should be based on what you know. Not everyone should go get a PhD. Not everyone should go into academia if it doesn't suit them. But that shouldn't stop you. That shouldn't put a ceiling on your career. There are not not all companies will allow you to do that. But there are a growing number of companies with a master's and a bachelor's. You can eventually rise to scientist level. That's my soapbox on that. <laughs> that one I feel pretty passionately about. So PhD can be a painful process. Yeah. And I don't want anyone to have to go through that if they don't have to. Do you have any other myths? I can't think of any more off the top of my head, but as soon as you're going to say it, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, this one, I think, is something that we hear all the time. And it's something that, again, is just not true. And this isn't really academia versus industry. It's just sort of this idea when you're in academia, when you are a wet lab scientist, when you're a bench scientist or whatever your role is, you cannot create this belief that the only option is to continue in that same role, that you start as a bench scientist in your PhD or your master's program, and that is the only way that you're going to go. This is the only scientific career that you have. Pretty ingrained into PhD students in grad school, for sure. I think what I'm seeing is people are coming out of academia and they're kind of Sometimes they teach themselves a new skill and all of a sudden they can transition from bench scientist to a computational scientist. Yeah, but I think it, it goes even beyond that. It's not saying that if you are trained as a scientist, you have to be a scientist. There are so many career tracks and career trajectories that you can go into with a PhD, with a master's, with microbiology knowledge. It doesn't have to be collecting data. You could be a project manager. You could be a science communicator. You could be a commercial marketer, a salesperson, a field application scientist. A clinical microbiologist, all of these are open to microbiology. And I really do think that is 
what we hope to achieve in this little season three of the micro moment to show you just how many different avenues you can go if you're a PhD, if your master is coming towards the end of your academic career, coming up to your graduation. It's in a very exciting time, but it's also a very stressful time because no one, at least in my experience, no one helped me. No one showed me where I could go. And there's so many places that you can go. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. It goes to show that's still pretty ingrained into me as like one type of scientist to another type of scientist. But yeah, you're totally right. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're not limited to always being a bench scientist if that is not something that feels right for you. So I would like to transition now a little bit away from sort of those myths of academia and industry. I hope that was a little bit of a a good intro for you, trying to get your mind going on different career paths, on sort of opening that concept of where you can go with a microbiology degree. Again, we will dive into various careers in microbiology or that involve microbiology in upcoming episodes. But first, I want to discuss the three P's of a happy career. And this is a blog collaboration I did with a friend of the pod, Jeff Hannigan. Good old Jeff. Good old Jeff. And so this is sort of something that I was thinking about a lot because I recently transitioned into industry about a year ago. And I wasn't really sure if I was going to like it. I wasn't sure if I should stay in academia. Um, And eventually, it did seem like a really good fit for me. And I was really happy. I am really happy. And I came up with these three Ps of why I found this choice that I made worked for me. And this is not about academia versus industry. It actually has nothing to do with the sectors that you go into, but it's about how you structure your interviewing process to ensure that you are going to be happy wherever you are. So this could apply if you're looking for postdocs, if you're looking for uh, system professorships, if you're looking in industry, if you're looking in government, if you're looking to get into clinical or any other sector. Right. At the end of the day, you need to be looking out for yourself. Yes. And so the first P is passion. 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 I always say a PhD is about passion, hard work, and determination. And passion is something you have to have in your career and your life. You have to find projects that you are passionate about. And I think this is a pillar most people can understand and focus on. It's something that they know that they need to find. And I would say passion, and I've heard this from other people too, passion is stronger than having the right skill set. Passion means you'll be motivated to learn. You'll be focused on finding success. No matter what job you have or what skills you'd like to share, the project has to be something you believe in. And I went through that a couple months ago. Like I said, I went from one company to another, and I won't get into specifics, but the project I was on closed down and the company offered me another position, but I am I live and breathe bacteria for my research. It's something I'm passionate about. I even have a tattoo of bacteria on me, and there was no options in that company, and I had to think long and hard, like, do I want to do this? And at the end of the day, I said, no, I need I need a project that I can I can have that viver that excitement for. A lot of times in industry careers or in any job description, they're going to talk about what the job entails. 
And if you're like John and I, and you cannot survive without microbiology, and the fact of not having a career in microbiology is the worst thing in the world, as it is for us, then you probably don't want to go join a project that has nothing to do with microbiology, right? Exactly. So when you read a job description, regardless of whether it's in industry or academia, it's going to paint that picture. And you need to see if you can find yourself in that picture. Can you see yourself in this painting? It should excite you and you should feel full of hope and determination. And if you're not feeling that right at the beginning, that is not the job for you. I agree. When I was looking for other jobs, I did apply to some jobs that I was not excited about. And looking back, that was not, I was more of like doing that as, well, I need to find another job. And I'm glad I I, I found there's one that popped up and I'm like, you know what? That excites me. And I'm glad I went after that one. Let's go with P number two. Okay. So make sure that your guiding principles align. That is the second P, the second pillar is principles. And I think this is so true in a post-pandemic world. Gone are the days of rigid and stereotypical work schedules and workplaces. Going into industry doesn't necessarily mean you'll be working nine to five in a cubicle doing mundane tasks required by the bureaucrats above you. You're not a cog in the wheel. Likewise, working in academia doesn't mean you'll be working all hours of the day just to try and publish or find your next grant. Universities, industries, biotechs, governments are all run by people, and all those people have principles. And those principles will eventually guide the workplace and the overall community and the culture of the company or the lab or the university that you are applying to. So you got to ask yourselves before you even ask what is their guiding principles, what is the place that you're looking for guiding principles, you have to know what are your guiding principles. And if you don't know what your guiding principles are, you have to take a little moment and think, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up and why? I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to help people. I wanted to be a conservationist. These are principles that I still hold, values I still hold, and things that my company also hold. Here's, a, here's another question you can ask yourself to understand what are your principles? What events, roles, positions have you held that made you feel truly satisfied and why? And when you think of roles or positions, don't just think of the title that you have at work. I would think beyond that. Perhaps you, you worked with kids or you like to teach as a grad student. You were doing TAing and you really enjoyed that process of mentoring and teaching the next generation of scientists. So think of roles more in that than just, oh, I was a TA, right? And understand what about those roles were very satisfactory. And then this is perhaps the most important one and probably the hardest one. And this is what makes you different from everyone else. What do you believe in that makes you feel like an outsider? What is something that makes you feel so different from everyone else you can't connect with them? That is your unique factor. Mm -hmm. I think for me, what I learned is for uh, principle is like, I love being in the lab. And I think more recently I found that if there are people that don't, know what they're doing in the lab, I kind of enjoy teaching people how to do experiments or procedures in the lab. Yeah, that one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Yeah, that one-on-one -on -one mentoring. And like, 
I've been teaching a person at my lab and their eyes light up and make, gives me a good feeling. They're like, whoa, that's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. I think the point here is really in the job searching process, we are taught to fit ourselves into the mold, into putting ourselves in that painting that the company already sets. But this will inevitably lead to unhappiness if you're trying to wedge yourself into a mold that doesn't fit for you. It's not worth trying to mold yourself to the fit of the company that will not fit your mold for a workplace. I don't think I could say it any better than you did. Cool. So we're on to the third P of a happy career. Do you know what it is? I'm trying to remember. We have. You know what? I don't. It's not coming to me. I'm sorry. So the third P, and this one is super ultra important, perhaps even more important than the first two P's, is people. Mm. No matter what job you have, you are going to have to deal with people. And you're going to have to deal with those people a lot. Right? 40 hours a week. That's more than you spend with your friends. That's more time than you spend with your family. It's more time than most of us spend with ourselves. Right. It's probably more time than most of us spend with our spouses. It can be, yeah. So whether you classify yourself as an introvert or an extrovert, as a life of the party or a hermit, you will need positive people that believe in you and that you want to believe in too. And you want to make sure those people are going to be supportive They're going to be appreciative of your work and you can be appreciative of their work as well and that there isn't intimidation. You don't want to be intimidated by the people you work with and you don't want to intimidate the people you work with. This is a two-way street here. This is also the hardest of the piece to check during the interviewing process. It's highly unlikely you will jump on a phone interview and instantly connect with the recruiter or hiring manager and become like best friends with them. That's not possible. No. That's not a thing. It's also unlikely you'll be able to meet every person at a company before signing paperwork. Right. And sometimes it takes a while to get to know a person to like them. And I'd say like one of the best ways to try to get around this is if you're lucky enough to see some of the employees or talk to some of the employees, you can talk to them and see like how is the work environment. But I, I think there are, there are certain things that you can gather from someone with a 15-minute conversation with them. And you'll understand if someone's rubbing you the wrong way. And if that someone's going to be your immediate boss, that's probably not the position for you. You can also pick up on a lot of company culture in these in-person interviews. And that company culture or how the people behave body language can be really telling about how the company or lab is run. So if you have the opportunity to give an in-person interview or give a presentation live, as is sometimes the case when you're going for assistant professorship or in an industry position or wherever you are, this presentation is for you to show off your skills, but also an opportunity for you to gain insight, right? How attentive are they to you and to the subject that you are presenting on? Are they, when they ask questions, is the tone curious or is it undermining? 
I think the other thing you can often tell when you get the opportunity to go in is you can see how people are dressing. Is it a laid back kind of feel? Is it casual? Or are people dressed in, in business attire? And is that something that is you want in a workplace? Yeah, just to, you, you mentioned it, but body language, I feel, is a strong indicator. Indeed. I think those are three important pillars that you just laid out. Yes. And I would say in case you wanted another P, there is the fourth P that people don't always like to talk about, but everyone always thinks is really important. I hope I get this right. Is it pay? It is. Hey. Yeah. So the fourth P is pay. Always check to see what is the average of what your position should be paid before he's signing on the data line. Yeah. Collect your data. Don't allow people to step on you. You can do it. Make sure you know what you're worth. Yeah. Going in. Know your worth. And don't be afraid to negotiate. Yeah. It's expected. Do it. It is. Yeah. So to sum up today's episode, we talked about academia versus industry versus government versus clinical and talked about the universality of microbiology and all the places you can go. We busted some myths about working in industry, about how independent research really doesn't exist at all in the universe because no matter what, you need someone to fund your ideas. We discussed how you don't necessarily need a PhD to be a scientist if that is not something that you want to do. And there are lots of other career choices besides being a scientist. If the bench is not a place that you want to be, you are not stuck there for the rest of your life. We discussed the three P's or the four P's of a happy career, and they are. Let's see. We got four P's. One is passion. The other is people. Another one is principle. And the fourth, if you want to include it, which we all do in the back of our minds, is pay. So with that, we will close out this beginning episode of season three on careers and microbiology. Again, if you have other ideas, just DM us and we will add them to the list of careers we will talk about. So we do have some other podcasts that we're going to sprinkle into this season that may not be totally about careers, but we do think that there are going to be fun little podcast episodes that we'll bring to you in February and the March. The first is going to be Derek Miller, where we'll talk about lab coats and why you need a new one. And if you don't know why you need a new one, tune into the episode. And finally, we will be interviewing the author of Invisible Friends, which is an upcoming book that you can buy shortly all about microbiology. So if you don't want to miss any of that, you should go ahead and like and subscribe to the podcast, The Micro Moment, anywhere you listen to podcasts. But until then, feed your microbes, feed your guts, make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.